testing. Oh, sorry about that, everyone. So hello, and thank you very much for joining us. My name is Paul Meany. I'm the interim director of Liberty.org. Don't worry about that too much. So on behalf of the Cato Institute, I'd like to welcome you all to our book forum today on Tim Sandifer's new book, Freedom Furies, How Isabel Patterson, Rosewater Lane, and Iron Round Found Liberty in an Age of Darkness. Uh, critics of libertarianism, they often talk about how libertarianism is an ideology created for and by economically privileged white men, but they often ignore the historical case that America, the American libertarian movement was founded and kept alive mainly by the dogged efforts of these three women. So to talk about this, we've got Timothy Sandifer, the Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Goldwater Institute of Sharf Norton Center for Constitutional Litigation. He also holds the Duncan Chair in Constitutional Government. He litigates important cases for economic liberty, private property rights, free speech, and other matters across the states. He's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and the author of Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, and many, many other books. Following Tim's brief discussion of his book, we're gonna have an open discussion style format with our panelists. Joining us, we have Elizabeth Nolan Brown, who's a senior editor at Reason Magazine and co-founder of the Libertarian Feminists for Liberty. Uh, she's also covered a broad range of political and cultural topics with a special emphasis on politics, policy, and legal issues surrounding sex, speech, tech, reproductive freedom, and women's rights. She frequently reports on topics such as sex work, social media, antitrust law, abortion, feminism, the First Amendment, policing, and Section 230. Carla Howell was the campaign communications director for the Libertarian presidential nominee Joe Jorgensen in 2020 and Gary Johnson in 2016 and 2012. She was previously the Libertarian Party of Massachusetts candidate for Massachusetts State Auditor in 1998, US Senate in 2000, and Governor in 2002. She is the longtime record holder among Libertarian candidates for, total, for vote total and a co-founder of the Center for Small Government. She is also a singer-songwriter on politics, liberty, and other topics. Lastly, moderating our discussion is Kat Murthy. She's the Associate Director of Audience Acquisition and Engagement at the Cato Institute. She's also the co-founder of Feminists for Liberty and the co-leader of the DC chapter of the Ladies of Liberty Alliance, as well as the communications consultant for International Organization. She serves on the board for Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an international nonprofit empowering young people to end the global war on drugs. With introductions out of the way, I'll leave the floor to Tim. Thank you very much. I, I, since the book is about three pioneering women who more or less started the modern libertarian movement, I think one thing that we want to talk about today is the rather curious phenomenon of why the cause of individualism was led in the mid-20th century so largely by women. And I start in, in approaching this with a story that of a meeting that occurred in November of 1943 between Isabel Patterson and, of all people, former President Herbert Hoover at a lunch at his offices at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Manhattan. Now, it was kind of a weird meeting because Patterson detested Hoover. She thought his policies as president had been stupid and that his books and speeches were idiotic. And But they, the meeting had been set up, and she attended. The meeting had been set up probably by her friend Rose Wilder Lane, who had known Hoover since 1920 when she wrote a biography of Hoover when he was first considering running for president and, became, and was a, a pen pal of his for many years afterward. And she and Ayn Rand, who is Isabel Patterson's protege, were hoping that Hoover might help promote Patterson's brand new book, The God of the Machine, which was one of the pioneering works of individualist economics and sociology. 
Well, the meeting did not go well, and I, I, I'm going to take this out because I want to quote this. This is the letter that uh, Patterson wrote to Rand after the meeting. During the, their conversation, she said uh, she asked him the question that had bothered her so much. Why was it that business leaders refused to speak out when the Ro Franklin Roosevelt administration imposed taxes and regulation and antitrust persecutions against them? And she said... He told me what they all tell me. They are far too busy to think. They have no time or opportunities to do so. You see how it is. They have what is called a good education and make money and have two or six secretaries and meals sent up and are large, able-bodied men, so it is impossible for them to think. Whereas you and I, with the extraordinary advantages we have possessed, being women with a living to earn as best we can, and no backing, and the dishes to wash, and with aforesaid prominent men cutting our throats by endowing every triple asterisk pink in the country, and supporting the, name, the same on all the periodicals, it is obvious that we can very well do the thinking, is it not? Why, certainly. You and I ought to burst into loud sobs over the unfortunate destiny of those men who had no chance at all to think. Well, uh, it, it, while Hoover's answer may have been kind of silly, it does point up this interesting question of why the cause of individualism was led by so largely out of proportion to their cultural influence by women in the 1940s. And I think the answer, although I can't give the definitive answer, I think one reason why is because that each one would have given a different answer. That is, that although just as there are different varieties of feminism, there are different varieties of libertarian feminism. And each of these three women had different perspectives on freedom that were in harmony, but were informed by their own different backgrounds. Rand, for example, was born in, in Russia in 1905. She grew up in the Soviet Union. And while there, she was very much influenced by the work of the playwright Henrik Ibsen. And who was, seems to have been a favorite of the family. In fact, Rand's sister, Nora, was named after the main character of Ibsen's feminist play, A Doll's House. Now, that play involves a housewife named Nora who has secretly borrowed money to help her husband and then secretly taken a job on the side in order to pay back the debt. And she gradually finds that she rather likes working for her own money. And when her husband finds out about her deception, he is more shocked by the, he's more afraid of the social uh, 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 condemnation that this will incur than anything else. And this fact opens Nora's eyes to the fact that her marriage has been a sham all along. He hasn't cared about her as an individual in the least. And she says, it's your fault that I have made nothing of my life. And she decides to leave him, obviously very controversial in the 1870s when this play came out. When he says, what about your duties? She replies, I have more important duties, duties to myself. Well, that obviously appealed to Ayn Rand, but so did Ibsen's earlier play, Brand, which was a high romantic uh, verse drama about a priest who is so devoted to his, to his principles. His motto is, uh, is uh, all or nothing, that he draws to him followers, including a character named Agnes, who starts out in that play as engaged to another man, but leaves her fiancé in order to follow Brand because she wants so much to help him achieve his heroic goals. And this image, I think, of femininity as being essentially about looking up to male virtue is found throughout Rand's fiction. Now, it's not that Rand thought women were inferior or anything, or that women's place was in the home. Far from it. Rand, you know, the main character of Atlas Shrugged is a woman who runs a railroad. 
But she longed so much for the opportunity to look up to something big that that's really part of what drove her heroic individualism. And she was horrified, I think, to find that the America she had immigrated to was turning away from such things even before the New Deal came along. In 1920, Sinclair Lewis published the novel Main Street, which just took the country by storm. Main Street is a story that t- about how miserably stifling and awful small-town America really is. That's basically the point of the book. But the main character of that novel is a woman, Carol Kennicott, who longs for a feeling of significance in her life and has that basically swallowed from her, taken from her bit by bit by her mindless husband and uncultured neighbors. At one point, she tries to organize a community theater group and her neighbors object that she, it's not fun because she demands that they, that they work too hard. And she responds, I wonder if you can think of the fun of making a beautiful thing. And that plea really resonated with Ayn Rand. Lane, on the other hand, I find Lane particularly intriguing on this subject of the relationship between freedom and, and womanhood. Women played a very large role in, in Lane's fiction. And she constantly reflected on the meaning of freedom for women. In, you know, she's most famous today, I think, as being the secret co-author of the Little House on the Prairie novels with her mother, Laura Ingalls Wilder. And those books did more than any other books to romanticize the idea of living on the frontier. But the reality is that Lane hated it, hated living on the prairie. So much, she moved to Albania to get away from it. About as far away as you can go before you start coming back. And she wanted to be a journalist. And she, early in life, she became a socialist as a teenager. Partly because, really largely because, socialism promised to overthrow the sort of sexist cultural stereotypes that kept women out of jobs, such as journalism. And she moved to Paris in 1920 to live the life of a lost generation expatriate. And while there, she became lovers with, of all people, Dorothy Thompson, who would soon after marry Sinclair Lewis. And uh, Thompson, however, seems to have been less interested in Lane than Lane was in her. And shortly after their their brief affair, they left Paris in different directions. Thompson went to Germany to become the first woman to lead a major American news bureau. She was then expelled from Germany in 1934 for her critical reporting on Hitler. Lane, on the other hand, went to Eastern Europe, to Georgia, Armenia, Albania, And while she was in Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union was proclaimed and Bolsheviks began to confiscate the grain of of the farmers that she was visiting and the the experience, the horrors that she witnessed in in the earlier Soviet Union scared the socialism straight out of her. She returned to the United States and began rethinking everything she had thought about communism and socialism. And she wrote this letter in the 1930s to Thompson. She said, you remember when we thought the sun is rising in Russia? Well, it is a long time from that time to this, right? So Lane, I think that the connection with women here is that Lane and and Patterson were both born in the same year in 1886. They were in their 30s when women were given the right to vote in the United States. They had both grown up in the Victorian era. And I think they were very aware of the way that paternalism, the the idea that being helped or being protected was another way of of having your freedom taken away from you. 
And so when Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal came along and promised to protect people from risk and to feed and clothe and, clothe and shelter them and to, uh, to be their partner for richer, for poorer in sickness and in health as long as they promised to love, honor, and obey, I think they saw in that that the, the new paternalism of the New Deal was a way of taking their freedom away. Now, Lane's most interesting, I think, her most interesting reflection on the connection between between freedom and feminism, actually came in her last book, published in 1963, called The Women's Day Book of American Needlework. Lane had always been fascinated by the textile arts, and as she traveled the world, she collected examples of this, and she thought they reflected different national characters, and that American needlework reflected the way that freedom had affected the American character. For example, she said, there's no American peasant needlework. And there's nothing off limits to Americans to sew. The way that, for example, in China, it had once been illegal to embroider a, fi a, a dragon with five claws because that was reserved for the emperor alone. None of that existed in America, and Lane said that's because we're a free people. Now, it might seem frivolous to, to connect libertarianism with needlework, but in 1982, in her classic book, The Sub Subversive Stitch, Rosica Parker writes, to know the history of embroidery is to know the history of women. This had been a monopoly, an art that was monopolized by women throughout history. And so Lane writes here in her book, she says, as Americans were the first to know and to declare that each human being is a self-governing source of the life energy that creates, controls, and changes societies, institutions, governments, so American women were the first to reverse the old meaning of needlework design. They no longer copied the stiff formal order imposed upon enclosed patterns. They made each detail free, self-reliant, complete by itself, not quite like any other, and they let these details create the whole effect. Now, lest it sound like Lane had become a quilting, pe quilting bee busybody by this time in her life, two years after that book was published, at the age of 78, she went to Vietnam as a war correspondent. So she was tough as nails uh, at the same time. Those are some thoughts on, I, on why it is that the cause of individualism in the 1930s and 40s was led by these three really outstanding women who were all friends, who worked together and who in 1943 each published books. There was Patterson's God of the Machine, Lane's Discovery of Freedom, and Rand's The Fountainhead that really kick-started the cause of individualism in the 20th century. All right, we'll open up to discussion from the panel. Moderated by Kat. Yes, hello. Um, we are going to make sure that there's room for questions at the end. And then uh, if you all are watching online, you can post questions um, in the box under the live stream, in our Facebook or YouTube comments, or on Twitter using hashtag Cato Books as well. Uh, and with that, I'll jump right into it. So if the modern libertarian movement was indeed largely spearheaded by these three women, Isabel Patterson, Rose Wilder Lane, and Ayn Rand, and uh, why don't we hear more about them? And why is it that libertarianism tends to carry the stigma of being an ideology primarily for and by men? Well, I'll preface this answer by saying that my book is not primarily about feminism and doesn't try to resolve this question definitively, but I think that the, the answer is actually to be found in the era that came after their books were published. I think what happened was there was sort of this uh, conservative traditional backlash after World War II ended, and that 
placed a great deal of emphasis on sort of, you might call them the down-home virtues, the sort of thing that, that Sinclair Lewis had revel- revolted against. You know, Sinclair Lewis, when he was writing Main Street, this was kind of the, you might say it was their, ver- their generation's version of the anti-wokeness cr- crusade. You know, these guys were, were writing in, in hostility to the traditional, long-standing cultural values of America that, were, uh, that Lewis was satirizing in books like Babbitt. And in the 50s, you saw this sort of revival of a qualified version of that Babbitt sort of stereotype, and the conservative movement moved in that direction. A large part of this, of course, was the Christian revival of the 1950s, you know, uh, which, of course, Rand particularly was hostile to, but all three of them felt left out by that. So I think that may be one reason why, uh, why the feminine side of the equation was less heard, of, heard from in the... 70s and so forth when it came to economic liberty. But at the same time, I think you have to say with, when, with social freedom and, and stuff, it was libertarians are the pioneers of women's rights, of uh, freedom in the sexual sphere, freedom of women in the, the work sphere, all these sorts of things. So I think the stereotype, like a lot of stereotypes, is so knee-jerk and thoughtless that it's kind of hard to refute it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd also say that history is very, very unkind to some people. It can be a real random look of the draw what really happens to you in people's memory later on. When Karl Marx died, only about 11 people attended his funeral. Henry George was considered one of the most important economists in the world in the 1800s. His funeral had thousands, but today way more people are citing Marx than are ever citing Henry George. So I think it's a lot of the time it's up to having people to record these great events and record them happening, but also to keep the tradition alive. And I think libertarianism moved away from what the Three Furies talked about, like especially Isabel Patterson and Roswell Lane. They wrote these kind of epic history books, and libertarianism moved a bit more towards economics and specialization. And so we kind of moved away from this mostly moral approach to being a mixture of multiple different kinds of approaches. And I don't think they aged amazingly in that regard. Well, Carla, I'd like to hear your perspective on this as well, since you've been involved in libertarian politics for so long, and obviously you just worked on Joe Jorgensen's campaign, the Libertarian Party, co-founded by a woman, had the first uh, electoral college vote for a woman. Um, How would you respond to this? Well, my when I became libertarian, discovered libertarianism in the 90s, it the meetings I went to were predominantly male, and they still often are, but not always. And Rand was well-known, but the other authors were not, um, though I'd heard about them. And why they didn't endure, I don't know exactly why Rand did so much more than the other two. But um, in my experience, despite the fact that men represented the activist circles that I ran in, they, they, I never felt there was any detectable sexism of any kind. It was just who happened to show up. And um, interestingly, when I ran campaigns between 96 and 2010 in Massachusetts, the campaigns we ran, the volunteers who showed up for it were almost equally men and women. Um, the Libertarian Party activist meetings were mostly men in the beginning. But... And, and I can only speculate as to why that's so. I don't think libertarianism, libertarianism inherently has more appeal to one sex than the other. I think it was because the campaigns we ran were 
designed to have broad appeal and focused on what is of interest to voters as opposed to philosophical reasoning. And so women showed up. That's as much as I can say as to why. Um, I'll just add that, I, I mean, I wonder how much of it has to do with the fact that they had no institutional affiliations and, and if they were even, you know, penalized in this, in this historical respect by being ahead of their time because, you know, there was not this organized network of libertarian, um, groups or, or activists or anything at the time to sort of, um, hold on to and spread and memorialize, you know, some, some of their work. Um, so I think that 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 might play a part of it. It's also interesting, though, how that they have not been held up by feminist scholars at all either, for the most part, and how much, you know, it's not just like that libertarianism sort of forgot them for a while, but the fact that they're not held up more by by feminist historians and, and scholars is really telling. Um, and I think that's, you know, kind of speaks to the way that women who are not writing from a, from a left of center pers- or, you know, out there act- being active from a left of center perspective often get overlooked when it comes to feminist views, even though these women were very much espousing feminist views. Oh, yeah. Yes. In fact, I would say, you know, there's a lot of talk now is about erased history. I mean, this is the erased history. The entire anti-New Deal movement, in fact, is erased history. You can you, you search the books on the history of the 30s and 40s for any discussion of the, the real fair discussion of the opponents of the New Deal, what motivated them, what they said, and why they said it. And this not only has the, the history been erased, but the, the people like Patterson, you mentioned how only 11 people attended Marx's funeral. Patterson is today buried in an unmarked grave in New Jersey. She was going, uh, she had, after her retirement, she lived with some friends who, who cared for her. And she, when she died, she was buried at a, at a church in New Jersey. Uh, the family, proposed a headstone, which the church found objectionable. And so it was never put up. And so to this day, there's no stone marking uh, Patterson's grave, which is, by the way, a project for any libertarian philanthropists out there. I I urge it upon you. She deserves to be better remembered. She was the one who was acknowledged by both Rand and Lane as the first among the equals. Uh, I want to get back to what you were talking about, Elizabeth. Um, about feminism, right? Because I do think that all three of these women have been lauded at times as feminist leaders, particularly by libertarians, and also attacked for being anti-feminist. Um, and of course, like Ayn Rand, for example, actively said that she was not a feminist. She was a male chauvinist, uh, as she identified herself. Um, and, but she wrote these strong female characters. Uh, Dagny Taggart, of course, uh, is running a train company. At the age of 15, looks around and realizes no other women are running train companies. Um, and, you know, Rose Wilder Lane is, you know, working, traveling the world at a pretty early time. She was in her 30s by the time women got the vote, both Patterson and Rose Wilder Lane. Um, she's traveling the world. She's a journalist. She's uh, writing these very female-centered stories, um, even, even her work around, um, around quilting and around embroidery. These are sort of kind of feminist looks, right? And they had these very feminist lives. So were they feminist then? I mean, I think it's interesting because from, from what I can tell, they, they wrote a lot more um, characters into their fiction that, that sort of, you know, lived feminist themes and, and discussed feminist themes more so than in their, you know, political or sociological writing. Um, I think that one of the things that is probably unfortunate for them and for, for libertarians as a whole is that 
um, we try to avoid falling into this trap of seeming like we just are talking about women's issues, you know? Um, I mean, even, even still today, you know, like I worry if I write too much or talk too much about women's issues, I'm going to get pigeonholed as this women's issues writer, you know? So I think that they were very, you know, loath to, to become that person who talked about women's issues and they didn't want to. And also, you know, um, they, I imagine, and, and as well as so many of us working on these issues today, don't want to, don't want to concede that women don't care about these other things too. You know, like I, I hate sometimes the narrow range of topics that get, get considered women's issues. It's like we are interested in, in the whole range of, you know, political and, and sociological issues out there too, just as much as men are. But I think that the problem is that sometimes there are issues that are more important to women or more science women and libertarianism uh, we often fail to talk about those issues directly so people think that we don't have anything to say about them and i think that that might be part of why they they don't get remembered as as feminist icons even though i, I think they were yeah i wonder if, if a similar thing could be said about race also because all three of them uh denounced racism but they also didn't want to become writers on that one subject. And so the closest who did would be Lane, who had a, a column in the Pittsburgh Courier, which was the nation's largest black newspaper. And she started writing that in 1943, the same year that her book, The Discovery of Freedom, came out. And she would, um, you know, in, stood out on that issue, I think, more than the other two, although the other two did write about this and, and took the anti-racist side. Incidentally, um, on women's issues, um, Patterson was proud to claim that she was the first journalist in America that she was aware of who had written and published an article saying that prostitution should be legalized. And she's, again, it's a shame that Patterson is so forgotten. Part of that was her personality. Part of that was the unfortunate situation toward her, the end of her life. She, she lost her job in 1949 and kind of, you know, lingered in obscurity after that. And so she's been uh, largely forgotten except by specialists. And also, to be frank, The God of the Machine is not an easy book to read. It's, it's brilliant, but there are parts where you have to reread sentences to quite grasp her meaning, as opposed to uh, Rand's fiction, which, you know, is, is very engrossing and, and, and so forth. So that's one reason. But it, it's a real shame that Patterson isn't better remembered for pioneering not just feminism, but other issues too. I also wonder to what extent uh, they, their views on feminism uh, and the roles of women were influenced by the world in which they lived, right? Because um, Rose Wilder Lane, for example, writes about how she felt that she couldn't be uh, fully a woman because she was no longer married. She was, of course, divorced. Yeah. She wasn't able to have children. Uh, but she also felt that if she had done those things, she couldn't be independent. And I think that that was very true of the period in which she lived. Uh, even legally speaking, she wouldn't have been able to have the same rights had she been a married mother as she was, as um, a divorced woman who was traveling the world who adopted many children, uh, but it was completely different. And so I do wonder if she had been alive today, if she might have had a very different perspective. And, and you know, a, a, another side of that coin, I think, is the associations that they would have had in their minds with self-proclaimed feminists of their day. For, for example, Eleanor Roosevelt, whom they all loathed, and Rand satirizes her as a character in Atlas Shrugged, as Kip's Ma in Atlas Shrugged, uh, who was, you know, just a dingbat. And, and I think that they would have thought, well, I don't want to be put in the same category as that, and so they would have distanced themselves from people like that, too. I want to go back to what you were talking about with uh, views on race. Uh, it, and I think that that kind of ties to 
what Rose Wilder Lane thought in terms of, you know, she was a communist, at least at the beginning, until she saw how the Soviet Union worked. And in later years, after she'd renounced her communism, um, she said that what had attracted her to communism was the pushback against racism, the pushback against sexism, against classism, right? And uh, similarly, Isabel, she'd been influenced by Eugene Debs when she was young through her aunt. Uh, Isabel Patterson actually voted for Eugene Debs because she liked his strong morals, even if she didn't necessarily agree with what they were. Um, I wonder how much... And they all voted for Franklin Roosevelt, too. And they all, they all voted for Franklin Roosevelt because he opposed prohibition. Uh, so I wonder to what extent... Um, that same rationale appeals to people who identify with communism or socialism today because they see it as, you know, the way to care about other people. Oh, yeah, I think that's true. I think that uh, the the interesting connection here to my mind is uh, Lane's novel, He Was a Man, which started out as a biography of um, Jack London, who was, of course, a, a well-known in America for being an early socialist. And in that book, as in London's own actual life, it's, it's revealed basically that they're drawn to socialism not by the economics of it. They don't even pretend to understand the economic theories of socialism. They don't, they don't get it. Everybody else seems to, so they go along with it. What they're attracted to is the social aspects of what was then the socialist doctrine. Uh, this incidentally, you mentioned 11 people going to Marx's funeral. Uh, you know, this paper that uh, Phil Magnus just published about how Marx was actually more influential as a result of the Soviet government's subsidization of Marx's work than he was when he was actually writing at the time. Uh, that, that comes to mind also that people, I think people's attraction to these uh, doctrines was because they proposed, they promised to be modernistic and to get rid of these stifling traditions that the ones that Sinclair Lewis was satirizing, for example, rather than because they believed in, you know, the labor theory of value or nonsense like that. I think another part about Lane is that she had a lot of firsthand experience of the early days of communism. I think it's really easy. A lot of people on the left, uh, the social ideas, they love the you know equality for all the races and sexes. But then when it goes down to the economic level, they get a bit quiet. And this is kind of what happened to Lane, where she had a discussion with someone over the collectivization of property in Georgia, I think it was. And she basically realized that a command economy is really commanding people because economics is kind of what we do with our everyday life. And I think a lot of what Lane realized during that time is kind of going back to America with a new set of eyes. She had grown up to kind of not despise, but not have too much respect for American traditions and values, so to speak. But then coming back to them after being in countries that didn't have them, they seemed almost as necessary as air to her. I think this is an interesting question too, though, because this is one of the things I really liked about the book. Um, in, in general, it, it really shows you how much of our of our political arguments and and movements and you know attraction to them is is sort of cyclical. But um, I, it's interesting to think because I think it's very true today too that you know the appeal for of communism or socialism for for like for Lane and for other people in her generation, like you said, it wasn't necessarily the economic ideas, but it was presented as a thing that was stood in contrast to like this stifling conformity of, of the main street and of small towns of America. And, you know, it was sort of seen as the thing that was thrilling and different and a way to rebel and also, you know, a way to be socially progressive and, and, you know, respect women's rights and things like that. And I think that's so much of what we see today. I mean, like socialism or leftism or just, you know, um, 
even even more the more centric normie democratic party they're still sort of presented as as more of the way to be you know to be on the cutting edge of ideas and things like that and and i don't think necessarily that everyone who is attracted to it as a young person yeah like really today thinks much about the the economic ideas underlying it and seriously rejects them after a lot of thought i think they just think like this is where the energy is the social energy too like there's a lot of there's a lot of social elements to to you know the dsa and things like that and and i think it's interesting lessons for yeah kind of what i think a lot of the intellectuals around rose wilder lane's time were attracted to it right these were all people who were pushing it back against certain social norms you know and a lot of them were social norms that were keeping women like rose wilder lane or isabel patterson that they were just actively pushing against in their lives that was really interesting um but I, I think your point, too, about how history repeats itself, that was something I kept getting to in the book. It's just the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I just saw over and over and over again these patterns, whether it was the, the language that New Dealers use to talk about their programs, um, the sort of contempt that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the politicians had for uh, the people they were supposedly trying to help out. That's, um, yeah, Timothy, that's one of the things I think you did really well was showcase, you know, some of these arguments we hear today from people on the left and right about how we need to sort of, you know, do away with demo- democratic norms, do away with these checks and balances because these are extraordinary times and they call for these extraordinary measures. And, and I think the book really highlighted how, like, people were saying those same exact things 100 years ago. Yeah, it's shocking the, the, the vogue for dictatorship that went on in, in this country, particularly in the late 20s and early 30s. And the conformity of today's progressive movement is, is similar to the conformity that, that the edginess became of the 20s. You know, so, uh, exactly. History repeating itself, as you history say. History repeats itself, yeah, it's these uh, ebbs and flows. I mean, even down to people you know, with Main Street, people leaving the small towns, joining the big cities, then they had the uh, Great Depression and they're going back to the small towns, and then they're coming back into the big cities. And we're seeing these same patterns here. Oh, yeah. In fact, one of the great discoveries to me while writing the book actually was Main Street, because I, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't really study much about Sinclair Lewis when I was in my English classes. And this was, Lewis was certainly the most important American author after Twain. Main Street knocked them dead in the 1920s. Now, I found the book horribly boring, but that's because it's about boredom. That's what the, that's the point of the book. It's about being bored. So of course it it works perfectly. And, um, then after you read Main Street and you look around you at contemporary culture, you see this, you see this, it's influence just incredibly pervasive. It's not just in the fountainhead, which is deeply influenced by Lewis, but in books like Revolutionary Road, for instance, you know, or, or there are novels and movies that we're still making that are that are just Main Street told over and over again. It's really incredible. Yeah, one of the things. Oh, Paul, I wanted to say one thing is we're saying how much things have changed, how much to say the same. I want to have one little note of optimism: was that back in Lane, Rand, and Patterson's day, there was no libertarian movement. There wasn't really anything. So at least now there's something to combat against. That is true. There is now a, a large body, particularly in economics, a large body of thought that you can consult to push back against the kind of schemes that the left and the right have been offering for well over a century now. Like to really well, look the at the basic period. economic rights of women uh, didn't exist at the time that Lane or Patterson died uh, that we have now. That's, that's kind of what I was getting at earlier. I feel like yeah. they would have had much different views if they'd been able to own property in the same way. Yeah, I just think that there's a lot of libertarian pessimism out there. And a lot of it's very, very justified because... 
things don't always look to be getting very much better. But when you look back at what Patterson, Lane, and Rand were doing without any real structure, any real movement, they were kind of complete lone wolves. Makes you very, very appreciative of what we have today. And and there, on the top of that, there are, have been a few legal and social changes that also are great improvements that protect us from an exact repeat of that. One of them being, of course, the two-term limitation for president, which didn't exist in Roosevelt's day. And you know, the reason Rand laid aside her work on the Fountainhead to work for the Wendell Wilkie campaign was because she believed that a third Roosevelt term would mean the end of liberty in America and, and that Roosevelt would become president for life, which in fact he did. Uh, and that's a huge part. Another part is, I think, the sexual revolution and the civil rights movement of the 1960s, which obviously they accomplished great things in terms of practical consequences, but also in a more abstract sense, they re-injected the idea of morality in public policy in a way that the progressives had been moving away from. Remember, the progressive movement from 1890 to the 1940s and so forth, one of the main elements of progressive thought was to, was to, rem to separate law and morality. This is particularly, in my area of law, this is particularly associated with people like Oliver Wendell Holmes. This was an effort to try and separate this two and, and to scientifically plan society and the ec economy through these bureaucracies. And what people like Martin Luther King did was to re-inject the idea that this policy has to be within the boundaries of morality in order to be legitimate. It was imperfectly done, but it was an improvement over 19, certainly an improvement over 1941, right? The idea of, of putting Japanese Americans into concentration camps in this country, I think would, would not go over as well now as it did in, in uh, Roosevelt's day. So, you know, th those are some social improvements that we shouldn't overlook. Another reason for optimism might just be that, you know, it, it puts things into perspective about right now too. I mean, it does feel like a very bad time to be interested in individual liberty because, um, you know, the right sort of turning against it in terms of economic liberty and the left used to, and turning against it in terms of like civil liberties and free speech when we used to be able to count on, on, on you know, those respective sides for at least half of the equation. But, you know, seeing how bad things <laughs> were and how, how little support there was on either side for, for a lot of these principles, um, you know, in other parts of, of the, when the, they were alive, it, it puts it in perspective that like, we probably aren't going through the worst crisis for, for American liberty uh, that this nation has seen. As the old saying has it, the, it, the darkest moment is just before the lights go out completely. I prefer the darkest is before the dawn, but um, no, I think that's actually a good point. Reading the book does give you optimism because things were much worse then. There's this great moment where Rose Wilder Lane gets uh, visited by the government for uh, her postcard where she's uh, objecting to, I, I think, the income tax. Yeah, it was, so this, was, this has become a classic moment in, in libertarian history. So Lane had written a, a, an angry postcard to her local radio station, which had an editorial on it about uh, Social Security. And she wrote this postcard saying, if we're fighting the Germans, why are we at the same time mimicking German public policy by adopting a welfare state program that was pioneered by Bismarck? That letter got, that postcard got reported to the FBI, and the FBI had the, lo the state police come to her house, and she was gardening in her front yard when the officers arrived, and she, they, they confronted her about this, and she said, what, what are you here for? And they explained, and she said, is that subversion? And they said, well, yes, ma'am, it is. And she said, well, then I'm as subversive as hell. Now, part, one version of the story says that she then invited the officers in for cookies. 
she uh, claimed that that was not true in her letter to Dorothy Thompson afterward, but she was very proud and she wrote to Thompson that uh, she wished that somebody other than her sunflowers had been able to hear her, her boldness. So um, the very fact that she had a garden too, that was subversive. Oh yeah, she, that's right. She was growing that garden in order to not be subjected to the rationing during World War II. She was pickling her own her own And the pickles income tax. And, she right. actively kept her income low enough that she could not be taxed. Yes, a point on which one of her critical biographers particularly takes her to the woodshed, because apparently you owe it to the state to make enough money to pay more taxes or something like that. I don't so um, all three of these women saw technological development as a symbol of freedom in a very real way. Um, Ayn Rand, you know, as everyone knows, loved uh, skyscrapers, which she saw as this major symbol of freedom. Um, Isabel Patterson termed her own generation the airplane generation. She herself actually broke records uh, flying an airplane, uh, which was very unique for a woman of that That's right. She set the world altitude record in 1912 of 5,300 feet. Yeah, and yet I think Ayn Rand, influenced perhaps by Patterson and Lane, set a lot of her books in less urban areas. Um, obviously, Lane's Little House series was all about the American frontier, and uh, Isabel and Rose Wilder Lane both ended up living on farms at the end of their lives. How do you, how do you reconcile that? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question. So it is true. Lane's novels, now, what happened was that Laura, her mother, came to her with the handwritten manuscript of what later became the Little House series. This manuscript has now been published as um, Pioneer Girl, and you can get the annotated Pioneer Girl fantastic book. I very much recommend it to all of you which uh, has annotations that explain, you know, wh what the dates were of these circumstances. That was written in first person from Laura's perspective. It was unpublishable, though. It just really wasn't readable quality. So Lane helped her to take it apart into separate books, fictionalize it put, it, put it in third person, and told those stories. But she also, at the same time, used some of the material for novels aimed at adults, most notably her novel Free Land, which was really her bestseller, was the, her breakout novel that allowed her to buy a house in Connecticut. And uh, that novel, as well as, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it, uh, the, the, her, her earlier novel, um, uh, Let the Hurricane Roar, which was uh, kind of an early version of these books. Those books both were set on the, on the Pioneer West, you know, and, and they feature particularly, uh, Let the Hurricane Roar features a female main character living in the house by herself and her husband goes away during the wintertime. Uh, and Freeland is more told from the husband's perspective, but you know the, his wife is you know a, a really remarkable character, and she is her decision is kind of the climax of the novel. I I think Lane was really into the traditions and the and the cultural background of American liberty. She came back to the United States from her European travels, wondering what it was that made America unique. Why are we so dynamic? And that led her to consult the past. And the stories her mother told, but also, you know, other aspects. Another as uh, element of this, by the way, was uh, her reading of Charles Beard's books on American history. Beard was a progressive historian who was incredibly influential. And Lane was really bothered by his version of events. And I think she also tried to re refute him in her book. So she was more history-oriented, whereas Patterson and Rand were more forward-looking in that sense. I'd also like to add that Lane... Um... What I really like about Lane is she thinks that there's three great times that freedom was discovered in the world. The first with the founding of the Abrahamic religions, the third of the American Revolution, but the second is the founding of Islam. 
And not many Americans knew much about the Muslim world at the time, but a large part of her book, The Discovery of Freedom, she talks about how America couldn't exist without the technology that was produced by the Islamic Golden Age. And it's something really, really rare to see, especially when I was growing up and getting more into politics. There was so much anti-Muslim sentiment in Europe and in America that like it's this person talking about, no, American values and Islamic values are actually quite similar, historically speaking, and one has facilitated the other. I think that's brilliant because she's not okay. an American exception. Uh, on this point, on this point, because it is, it's absolutely fascinating. On this point, I will share, since it's just us friends here, I'll share with you a speculation that I have that I couldn't put into the book because I couldn't prove it. So Lane knows all this is this Muslim history, right? And she's, she's interested in what it was that caused the, the end of the Islamic Golden Age. Why did, why did that collapse? Well, we do know that in 1943, late 1943, Isabel Patterson wrote a letter to Ayn Rand, who, was the, who had moved to California to work on the movie version of The Fountainhead, in which she enclosed a, a reference to the Muslim theologian Averroes, in which he had been talking about, he had said, well, you know, when you're talking with religious fundamentalists, don't bother trying to persuade them. You should just retire within yourself and, and enjoy the solitary possession of the truth. And Patterson writes this letter to Ray, and she says, see, this is an example of what happens when the thinkers of the world go on strike. Now, by that time, Rand was already working on Atlas Shrugged, and she writes back to Patterson. She says, boy, now I'm going to have to finish the novel because you're going to make me do it, right? And so she, that in, it gets incorporated into it. I think what happened was that it was in conversations with Lane that Patterson learned more about the history of the end of the Islamic Golden Age, and then that then got transferred to, through her thoughts with Rand, her, their late night discussions, into what the, the strike that becomes the novel Atlas Shrugged. Pure speculation on my part, so I'm just indulging it among you. Just a simple take on this, your question of skyscrapers versus rural. I just think it's another example of them embra embracing and being libertarianism, which is just the absence of government, which means let it roll. Let, let the skyscrapers build, let the rural, rural people be rural, and it's all good. Yeah, that was one of the things I, I particularly liked was um, the, the discussion of how Lane especially, and I think Patterson to an extent also, very much rejected this you know, sort of popular uh, ideology at the time that was uh, among like artists and writers that was saying that like small towns were just like dull people, conformity. She just viewed like, it as bigoted. Right, and I, I think that's really, uh, that made me like them a lot more. Uh, and I think it, it also speaks to something that we still see very much today too. I think it's a problem in in, in you know artistic circles and and also in in journalistic circles um there's so much of a feeling like where like anybody outside of new york dc and la is treated as like a curiosity by uh by journalists that they can sort of you know swoop in and like use in a sort of very caricatured way but not understand as people who are actually leading you know noble and value-filled lives even if they're different and i i really appreciated that they felt like that yeah absolutely um so you, you mentioned before, these all three women voted for FDR because he opposed prohibition. And then, you know, they went on to the New Deal was perhaps one of the biggest enemies of uh, all three of them. Uh, similarly, they supported the Wendell Wilkie campaign, at least early on. Ayn Rand actually worked on the Wendell Wilkie campaign and then soon found herself being one of the key spokes uh, people for the campaign, in part because she understood the ideas that he was supposedly supporting more than he did. And they were so greatly disappointed by the fact that he actually wasn't that different uh, from his opponent, that he was supporting a lot of the same 
a lot of the same government intrusions, just in a more milquetoast way. And so I think that's really fascinating. These are these deeply political women who then were disappointed by politics. So this is something that libertarians still see a lot today. <laughs> yes, very true. Yeah, so um, the connection with Wilkie, so th this is, you know, it, this is a tiny right-wing conspiracy. Um, Wilkie was carrying on an affair with Patterson's boss at the New York Herald Tribune, Irita Van Doren. And I, if we're indulging in speculation, my, and I'll give you another speculation, which is I sort of think that Patterson may have had a hand in writing some of Wilkie's speeches. I can't prove this. I have no evidence of this. But she did write a letter to Rand enclosing a clipping from one of Wilkie's speeches where she had highlighted something and had written something like, you know, I wonder where he got this, you know. Um, so they, I think that, and I think that, Patterson had this vague hope that, that Wilkie would, would break the, the Roosevelt monopoly on the White House. And of course, that didn't happen. And then, of course, as you know, Rand was so disappointed by, by Wilkie's campaign that she decided to start her own intellectual movement for freedom. And that is actually how she ended up meeting Isabel Patterson and starting to group, to, trying to, to arrange a coordination of intellectuals for freedom. She wrote to various people, and one of them was Patterson. And that's how they got to meet in early 1941. Um, yeah, they were disappointed by him and by many other people, including my own uh, patron, Barry Goldwater, um, you know, in the, in the 1960s. I think it's just, uh, you know, unfortunate facts of political life that, that uh, the candidates very often end up compromising their principles of liberty and, uh, and disappointing the, those who, you know, are, are true to the principles. Yeah, uh, and it wasn't just politicians that they were that they were disappointed by. These these were all women who were very capitalistic. They they obviously loved capitalism. They thought that it had it was very valuable, and yet they found that they couldn't count on the business community. Ayn Rand sort of famously wrote to Isabel Patterson, "We'll have to save capitalism from the capitalists." Right, and so uh, I I want to talk a little bit about this, that. This is I know this made me think about all the tech companies. I, I read a lot about tech policy and how many of them are championing regulations that will restrict, you know, um, the private business or free speech in various ways because they think that it'll at least curry them favor with, with regulators in another way. And on one, le one level, I don't blame them because they're, it's probably the right strategy, right? Like they're probably actually maybe saving some free enterprise by cozying up somewhat about this, or at least, at least it's rational to, to, you know, why they're doing this. But it is so frustrating because you see this again and again today, these tech companies thinking like, well, if only we support them, you know, doing this, this regulation and this infringement, then maybe they'll, they'll spare us worse things. Uh, right now, Microsoft though, which has been a big proponent of, of using antitrust uh, laws, reforming them to use against like Twitter and, and Meta and, and things like that. And now they're about to be sued by the Justice Department for their latest merger and so it kind of shows you that like there actually is ultimately no winning with that route, but feeding the alligator, hoping it eats them last. Yeah, the, the face eating. Yeah, I, I never thought the lion would eat me, says the person who voted for face eating lion party. Yeah, the alligator gets bigger in the meantime and much stronger and hungrier. Well, I'm kind of surprised that they these ladies didn't acknowledge. Well, I'm curious, did it exist? the degree to which businesses are threatened by government at that time as is true today. In my observation today, and as far back as I can remember, it's, it's very, very real. And, um, and I wonder, it must have been pretty real then too. I mean, one example in my own experience was working on a um, 
a property tax cut initiative in Waltham, Massachusetts that would have benefited businesses and residents. And the businesses loved it, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't do a thing. They wouldn't do anything to help. They were absolutely petrified that they would be retaliated against. It's, so I wonder what was yeah. true back then. It's sad. I mean, that's what you got the impression from that. It, yeah, that was just exactly as true back then. Right? Yeah. And that's, that's what Isabel Patterson was railing against, even with Herbert Hoover. And I, I, I a good example of this. I'm uh, glad you read that letter. I, I have a good example of this, and that is um, the uh, National Industrial Recovery Act imposed various codes of production on all of the industries in the country, uh, including the automotive industry. And Henry Ford refused to go along with the act. Now, the reality was that Hoover was actually already complying with the act, with all of its restrictions and prohibitions and things in his own factories. But he refused to openly agree to the act. He refused to sign the documentation. He was required to certify it. And Roosevelt put out an order saying that the federal government would cancel all of its purchase contracts from Ford Motor Company unless Henry Ford himself signed the document agreeing to the legitimacy of the National Industrial Recovery Act. Now, Ford was able to hold out. In fact, Roosevelt was ultimately forced to back down in that demand. But you can see how Ford could afford to. Other people, they couldn't afford that kind of resistance. Incidentally, you see that in the passage in Atlas Shrugged, where Hank Reardon is forced to sign the document to turn over Reardon, Reardon Metal to other care. Uh, you, the, you know, one thing, a lot of people talk about Atlas Shrugged, they use the word prophetic, that, that Atlas Shrugged predicts the future. In fact, Atlas Shrugged is Ayn Rand's Great Depression novel. And basically everything that happens in Atlas Shrugged really did happen in the United States during the New Deal. Yeah, I think one thing that was interesting to me reading this book is that uh, these three, whether you call them the three mothers of libertarianism or uh, the three furies, as you do in your book, are oftentimes sort of grouped together. But they were actually very different women coming from different backgrounds, and they disagreed on a lot. Um, so, and one area where I, I think that there's the most profound disagreement was probably on the role of charity. Um, on the one hand, you have Ayn Rand, who I think unfairly is viewed as uh, being against charity. She, she wasn't exactly. She just didn't think that there was any particular moral value in charity. On the other hand, you have uh, Rose Wilder Lane's views on um, the uh, – now suddenly I'm blanking out of brotherhood. Brotherhood, right. Right, uh, which uh, – which was essentially that there was uh, a moral value. Uh, you should be expected to help out your neighbors just because that's what you do. Um, at the same time, you know, she refused to participate in Social Security. She refused to participate in the income tax. She was very against any sort of government charity. But, you know, she independently gave away all of her money, drained her savings account multiple times, supporting projects or people. She supported her parents. She... Uh, paid for the educations of numerous young people that she met, even though she herself didn't go to college because she couldn't afford it. Um, yeah, so I, I'm kind of curious about discussing this because I think this is still a tension that we see um, nowadays when people think about libertarianism. A lot of people will say like, oh, okay, you don't want to help people. And I don't think that's necessarily true. No, definitely not. In fact, I think the person who's most interesting on this subject uh, for our purposes is Isabel Patterson, because in The God of the Machine, she talks about how if you if you you know, there, it wasn't that there was no charity before uh, the, the New Deal. There, it wasn't that that there were no ways of helping the poor before the New Deal. There were. It's just that they were run by private 
uh, entities largely that made sure that these were this was not a permanent state for these people. And she says the real innovation of the New Deal was to make pauperism a permanent state, to create a system where you could remain poor for life and, in fact, were essentially rewarded for doing so, and that this would be uh, hailed as a, a, under the term compassion. And that was really, I think, the, where they, their, their views overlapped. I think it's interesting because whether whether we as individuals or as a society owe it to to help people who are who are in need, I don't think that's a question that libertarianism per se can can answer. You know, I think that is a is a matter of of personal morality, perhaps religious beliefs, but not necessarily religious beliefs. Um, but regardless of where you come down on that, it just seems bad tactically to sort of argue against charity because I think that is one of the major problems that people have with libertarianism. Most people just, you know, are, you know, bleeding hearts. They hear like someone is in need, they want to help. And if we offer nothing, if we say like, no, the government shouldn't do this, perfectly fine position, but then also that like no one should help them. I think that that just turns a lot of people away from libertarian ideas. In fact, I think a selling point of libertarianism is charity. And in the, because it's one of the most beautiful things in life is giving. It's it's something we do because we want to, because we feel good doing it, because we benefit in a lot of ways, and it's just beautiful and good. And, you know, the people who destroy that are the status, and we need to point this out constantly. Yeah, I, I always find um, I, these numbers may not be up to date, but uh, the, the the old surveys that show the people who support more government programs also tend to give less to charity on an individual level, which I find fascinating. I was going to say, Elizabeth, I completely agree with you because it is important to talk about the moral virtues of charity. But I think it's also really important to say that caring and charity aren't the same thing. And that often government is about using caring as a cudgel. Like where I'm from in Ireland, women had the constitutional right to stay in the home because the government cared so much they thought that working outside that was all grimy and disgusting you're better off in the home they thought it was a nice thing to do and sometimes i think libertarians ought to talk about the moral virtue of charity and how it's a great thing that's freely chosen but they also need to discuss how people using the language of charity not charity itself but the language of charity and the language of caring is a great way for governments, all sorts of organizations, to take advantage of people and to help them their way and only their way. And I think a lot of people uh, who make laws view themselves kind of the way Plato, Marx, and more always did in a static utopia, where once they've distributed everything out nicely, there'll be no need for anything else, no charity, no other virtues. And we need to flatten them when they do that. We need to really fight that and expose the lie that it is. I mean, I think it brings us back to what we were talking about with Rose Wilder Lane's own attraction to communism and what I think is most people's attraction to communism, right? She saw it as a way to help people, and then she saw how it actually worked, and she didn't like it so much anymore, right? And I think that, like, uh, a lot of times when we talk about libertarianism, uh, people think about free markets, they think about just the economy, but it's about much more than that. And I think all of these women were trying to paint that picture, there's there's a larger picture outside of just the money, even if we are talking about the money. Yeah, I would say that that's one of the great insights of the God of the Machine is is precisely that she her her argument there starts with economics and then moves into these other realms where the same arguments apply. And I thought what you said is a perfect precis of what Patterson has to say about charity in her book. Uh, I didn't know about that about the Irish Constitution. That's incredible. <laughs> 
uh, women were uh, encouraged to stay in the home. It was in the Irish Constitution until very, very recently. Well, you know, in, in their day, in, the, in Patterson Lane and Rand's day, that would have been Italy, would have been the focus there. Because Italy was viewed, especially in the, in the late 20s, as sort of this, it's insane to say it now, but as an economic miracle, as being the, this is the way of the future, because, see, democracy had failed. And what we really need is a strong man like Mussolini to come in and get things done. You know, because we can't be bothered with persuading people. We need to get things done. And that requires a strong person to impose it on us all. And, of course, one of the things that Mussolini did was to strip women of their rights in, in his Italy. Uh, and the, the ability to, for a woman to go to college or to get a career just eventually essentially evaporated. I think that the great part about Roswell Lane and Patterson in particular in their books is they go against that narrative of getting someone strong in to get things done because their books are kind of like the history of the whole human race, but they're not talking about the generals and the kings and the warriors. They're kind of talking about everyday average people who go about their ordinary lives, but just how they happen to benefit the world while doing that. And I think they take the onus and they take the power of history. They take it from generals and all these murderers and mass like slaughterers and put it back in the hands of everyday regular people and show that economics isn't just this kind of weird discipline that's all about mathematics and models. It's also about the everyday things we do and the decisions we make. I also liked reading about their, um, you know, sort of pushback against the idea that, that it, there wasn't an American spirit and I, their, their search for what it means to, to have like an American spirit and, and why Americans are such an individualistic people. Um, I, I think, you know, it's interesting because they were getting a lot of pushback at that time. It's, you know, in terms of these, these, history books that were saying like actually like it was all just you know uh, the whole myth of the american founding and individualism is a lie and, and they were pushing back on that and again it's just like we are having that exact same discussion today with things like the 1619 project and all that like we're having the exact same discussion and i'd say textbooks yeah and and people are very much discouraged from saying that you know there was anything good about the american founding or that that there's anything unique about you know an american spirit and i think that that's a shame well you know and they say history is written by the winners and i think that you can kind of see that even in these individual arguments and you do a good job of addressing as well you talked about this a lot of times when we talk about the new deal we don't talk about all the people who oppose the new deal and in one way in which we don't do that is uh women who oppose the new deal for the most part are characterized as opposing it because they preferred the patriarchy prior to that where they were taken care of by their husbands and fathers we still hear this all the time that as if there's this dichotomy where you can either support state control or you can support the sort of patriarchal control within the home and all three of these women pushed back against that very strongly they opposed the new deal not because they wanted to live in this world before but because they didn't want to live in either of those cages. Yeah, I think the 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 real point that all three of them tried to to emphasize very strongly on this point is the New Deal clothed itself as being the wave of the future, and all three Rand Patterson and Lane pointed out that in fact it was a, it was a 
it was a reversal of that. It was going back to a time when political authority controlled everything, when conscription and confiscation and censorship were the way of politics. That had always been the time since the beginning. That had been the way things were since the beginning of recorded history until the classical liberal revolution of the 18th century changed that. And now what Roosevelt was doing was turning the clock back to a period before that. And he was pretending to be the wave of the future. And they tr that's where that lay. And unfortunately, that's a lesson many people still have not learned to this day. So I want to go to questions from the audience. Uh, but before I do, one of the things I thought was really interesting about this book is that, you know, I went into it expecting it to be more like a biography. Uh, and it's not. It's more of it's a book of ideas. And it's about the ideas that influenced each of these women and how their ideas influenced each other and how their ideas also influenced other thinkers of their time. Uh, you talked a lot about Main Street by Sinclair Lewis, um, uh, and that was just one of these many books that I've added to my reading list after reading this. Uh, I've never been particularly interested in reading it now. Now you tell me it's boring. Boring. But I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to do a it. Great, right? A great book. Um, that one, I haven't read Freeland. That's now on my list. I wanted to read um, Isabel Patterson's, uh, which one is it? The Golden, uh, Golden, Golden Vanity. Golden Vanity. 1934. That sounded good. But the, uh, some of these other ones, like um, all three of them really hated Economics in One Lesson by Henry yeah, it, right. which is one of my favorite books. I know, books. it's totally unfair. I want to go back. I want to go back and reread it and see and the That's such context, a great book. I right? love Economics in One Lesson. I felt really bad about reporting what, how Lane and, and Rand both disliked it. It's yeah. a shame. <laughs> but I am kind of curious, were there, are there other things that you guys want to look into more now after reading the book? Is there anything that you guys were kind of inspired? Were there things added to your reading list or stuff you want to go revisit? Other than my books, of course. <laughs> um, I'm always interested to see how American progressives from the 1890s to the 1930s were the scariest people on the planet. Like <laughs> what they write about is genuinely terrifying and how many... Well, we don't hear about a lot of yeah, it anymore, it, right? It's amazing you don't hear very much about it, but their views on eugenics and things are... It blows my mind that they're held up like they're still held up quite well historically. And when you talk to Americans about FDR, they're like, yeah, what a great president. And it, it shocks me, to be honest. I, uh, I haven't, uh, well, I read the Little House on the Prairie books as a kid, but I have not read any of Rosewater Lane's um, not fiction novels uh, aside, from, aside from those. So this really made me want to delve deeper into them. I mean, he, uh, the book explains like some of the main themes of some of them. And it just seems like there's a lot of really interesting feminist themes in them um but that that are subtly feminist and uh it just really made me want to want to actually visit some of her novels on that point i would i would recommend old hometown which i think is lane's best book it's really more of a collection of short stories than a novel really but it has the same characters who kind of go through and um what's great about it is it's it's basically the story of laura's daughter you know it's like if you read the little house books and then you flash forward and read the story of her daughter, and her mother even plays a role in the in the book, and it's just a marvelous little book. I'd like to read that, and also I have not read The God of the Machine, but I'm very interested in reading that. That's been on my list for a while, yeah. Um, yes. Oh, before I take questions, I want to remind everyone who's watching online, you can also post your questions in the question box if you're watching on our website or on the YouTube or Facebook comments or on Twitter using hashtag CatoBooks. Uh, you might need a mic so they oh, can yeah. hear you online. 
Oh, sorry. Hi, I'm Christine Hall of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Um, so I'm going to stumble my way through this question a little bit. The, the comment about eugenics, that related to my question. Sometimes I think that there's um, a lack of an ability to speak about things with nuance, with people with nuance. And so um, sometimes with Rand, who's the one I'm the most familiar with out of this group, there's this effort to like dismiss her, dismiss her because of her like personal picadillos or, you know, some aspect of the way she conducted herself or her life. I mean, she doesn't seem like the warmest and fuzziest person that, you know, ever walked the, the earth. Um, and, you know, or looking at somebody like uh, Coco Chanel, who, um, oh my gosh, was like, you know, a Nazi um, collaborator in many ways. Um, but you don't hear as much about that when people talk about her work, like something like Margaret Sanger, who's lauded and despite the fact that, you know, she was proponent of eugenics. And um, I encounter, you know, with uh, any conversation about Rand from libertarians and from the left, they want to just completely dismiss her because they don't like some aspect of what she said or did. And, and, um, and I feel like maybe I do this a bit myself, you know, like write somebody off completely um, if I don't like some really, you know, thing that I think they said or did that was terrible. So maybe I'm a little bit guilty of this myself, but I'm wondering if you've encountered this, um, you know, this like really lack of nuance in talking to people about being able to pick apart, okay, we'll look at Coco Chanel. She's a real pioneer in like women's wear, even though, you know, that doesn't um, get rid of sort of the bad things she did. But I, I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Um, I think it's really difficult to really make any sort of judgment about morality and history in the end. It kind of feels like, Today in America, progressives want to be absolutist in the past, but kind of more relativistic in the present, and conservatives are kind of like the opposite. They want to pretend that, oh, back in the day there was no moral standards, but today we figure them out, so don't worry too much about it. Um, but I don't think there's, I, I, there's not that much room to talk about nuance generally because history isn't particularly nuanced. It's written by the winners and the wieners, as I say. But on top of that, I think you kind of have to catch yourself because... Uh, when I first started getting into libertarianism, I basically decided almost arbitrarily that I didn't like Ayn Rand. I don't know why, just everyone called her selfish and I just assumed, well, she must be. And then I caught myself reading her later in life and reading a bit more and realized I was basically wrong about her. And the only reason that I had kind of chimed in to criticize her was because everyone else was doing it. And I think that's kind of the part of people like Rand and Lane and Patterson that's difficult to parse into words is that they were very principled people that lived they lived their truth very hardcore and they didn't want to compromise very often. Now they did sometimes, but people like Lane, I think you'd agree to him, very rarely, if ever, compromised. And what that does is it sets you apart from the rest of society. Um, most of your beliefs are going to offend people. You're not going to be accepted in polite society. People don't want to be around you. While if you accept the powers that be, even if they're terrible, people will accept you for the most part and they'll even forgive you after the fact. I think it's interesting that, you know, you brought up that, you know, Rand, you know, wasn't maybe the most warm and fuzzy person. And I think that's something you can say about all three of these women is that they sort of went against uh, stereotypes of what women are supposed to be. Um, they all were sort of prickly people, uh, maybe especially Patterson. And uh, I mean, I don't think I, that can be bad for for people regardless of, of their sex. But I think that especially for women that can that can really handicap people, because sometimes if a man is difficult, it's attributed to just, you know, like like to genius. And uh, I think that, you know, I wonder how much that plays a role in people's ideas about Rand or in lack of knowledge about these other women is the fact that they weren't exactly, you know, charming and, and playing to the sort of stereotypes about what women should be. 
I have I was thinking that throughout the book in regards to Isabel Patterson. Uh, I, I mentioned this when we were in the green room. I've always kind of wondered why Isabel Patterson gets relegated sort of to the annals of history so much. And very few people know about her, particularly considering what a huge role she played in modern libertarian thought. And then reading Tim's book and reading her very brusque, I guess, is a, is a fair way of putting it, uh, approach to other people. And she, she did not possess soft, friendly people skills, uh, right? And so like, I can definitely see how that over and over and over again harmed her. Even people who liked her books she would criticize the things that they disliked about her books and then they wouldn't get recommended or they wouldn't get reviewed and things like that. And um, I think I mentioned this to you when we were talking about the book earlier. I wonder to what extent as well, the fact that she was a woman, especially a woman of that period with those types of skills, all, with those lack of people skills also influenced how, how she was received, right? Because one of her great uh, heroes was her former boss, um, who um, the artist who uh, Gutson Gutson Borglum? Sorry. Yes, who is most well known for doing Mount Rushmore, and what she greatly prized about him was his very like brutalistic uh, 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 approach to communications, right? Um, but to get back to your question, I think people are inherently flawed. All of these women were inherently flawed. There's a lot to dislike about them as well as like them, and. Um, I think that if you expect anyone to be perfect or to agree with you completely in order to find value in them, you will not find value in any one person. And, and, and on top of that, I'll say, I think the openness to nuance probably is in, in inverse proportion to the gains you expect to obtain from politics. The more important a role politics plays in your life, the less time or care you have for nuance, right? If your livelihood is made, made or broken by tomorrow's election, then you're in favor of Franklin Roosevelt and you're not interested in hearing any nuance because you want, you want to keep your job. When government and, and economics are more separated so that people have time to discuss the, 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 these issues more in depth, then there's more time and, and space for nuance. But as government's control over our lives increased in the 20th century, the role of nuance, I mean, the, the room for nuance in political discussion vanished. Uh, this question comes from online. It's short, so I'm going to uh, send it to you, Tim. Anonymous asks, why didn't Patterson, Lane, and Rand like Hazlitt's Econ in one lesson? Um, and I think I, it's their it criticism was, of many of the libertarian economists. Yeah, so it, I, I'll leave Patterson out because we don't really know what Patterson thought of the book. But Lane and Rand disliked it, particularly because uh, they thought that uh, Hazlitt has a few lines in there where he – two things. First, he has some lines in there that suggests that charity is like a moral – requirement and they both rejected that idea and there's a few lines in there where he does make some economically objectionable claims i don't think he intended them but just his wording suggests that there is a a qualitative dif difference between luxury goods and and uh, non-luxury goods in fact the economic process of supply and demand is the only way that we can draw a distinction between luxury goods and other kinds of goods. And so there, no such line can be drawn, which is, that's a nuanced uh, part of the argument, which is why I think it's a little unfair to hold it as a cudgel over a little book that's supposed to be about one lesson. But I think Lane and Rand's criticism of that particular page of Hazlitt's book is merited. It's just, it's one page, you know, so. Failure to nuance. 
Let me, speaking of nuance, I'll, I'll give you a nuance here, which is um, something that Rand and Patterson kind of, sort of disagreed on, because we haven't talked about what they disagreed about very much. And that is that Patterson was more of, more interested in what you might, what you would call the bourgeois virtues and less interested in the heroic virtues. Whereas Rand was more interested in the heroic virtues, and although she admitted the, the, the importance of the bourgeois virtues, she didn't really spend much time talking about them. What I mean by those two things is bourgeois virtues are the things like showing up on time, you know? Uh, working hard, respecting other people, doing your thing to support you and your family. The heroic virtues are things like building skyscrapers. And that's what Rand wanted to write novels about. Patterson's novels are, you might say, more nuanced. They're more about the bourgeois virtues. And she has this one section in her column where she talks about the self-starter. And what I think is really interesting is the self-starter is this self-reliant personality, but she says specifically in that passage that she's not talking about great innovators and inventors and heroes. Whereas Rand's perspective is much more, she focuses a lot more on the great innovators and, and, and heroes. And that's kind of a nuance between the two. A question there. Isaiah McKinney with the Center for Constitutional Studies here at Cato. You, earlier you compared kind of today's two-sided attack on liberty to the 1930s New Age, Dark Age of, of liberty. So I wanted to know if, drawing another similar comparison, if you would think, think there's anyone who you'd call like the modern freedom theories, any women in like the last 20 years, you go, oh yeah, these women will leave a mark historically like um, these three did. Oh, well, I, w I, I would not. <laughs> the, the fortunate thing is that there are too many to name. That's the, the true answer is the happy answer that there are so many now that you could not limit it, certainly not to three. I include a brief list at the end of my book. Uh, the one person who immediately comes to my mind is Virginia Postrel, from, uh, formerly of Reason Magazine, who stands out to me as an incredibly formative influence on my own thinking about freedom with her book, short little book called the Future, the Future and Its Enemies. If you haven't read it, I very much encourage you to do so. And I think future generations will see that as a really important uh, statement for freedom. I just want to give a, a plug to Joan Kennedy Taylor, who is one of my personal heroes. Um, she was a founder of the Association of Libertarian Feminists. She wrote several books. She wrote a lot of magazine articles. She founded a, also a group in the 90s called Feminists for Free Expression. And she is really just a model for uh, what Kat and I are trying to do with our group, Feminists for Liberty, and just a lot of my, my writing and thinking about how liber what, what a libertarian or individualist feminism can be is, is very much influenced by Joan Kennedy Taylor, who is also very sadly like forgotten by a lot of people who, who claim to be interested in, in feminism and in women's history. Uh, her book's called Reclaiming the Mainstream? Is yeah, Reclaiming right? the Mainstream. And then she's also got one called um, about sexual harassment, because again, this was the early 90s, and you know that it was a big, big issue then um, as now, and it's called What to Do When You Don't Want to Call the Cops. So it's, it's a very you know, early like anti-carceral feminism text. Here's a question from online. Uh, I know it was going to come up. Um, about religion. So Anonymous asks, don't you think Rand's atheism and the lack of religiosity of Lane and Patterson contributed to their being ignored and repressed by the Christian revival of the 50s? Um, and I just want to push back against the lack of religiosity of Lane and Patterson. Lane herself, as you mentioned, was very interested in Islam. She, I think, played with the idea of converting early on and then uh, decided against it for a few different reasons. But uh, both she and Patterson had repeated arguments with Ayn Rand um, 
about the role of religion and the role of God. So it was something that they were thinking about themselves. Well, it certainly is true that the Christian uh, conservative movement, which was really solidified under William F. Buckley, uh, is a major reason why Rand is excluded from the conservative world today. Uh Lane, much less so. Much, I think Lane is accepted within that world. Patterson is, as we've said, is kind of obscure for everybody. But I went into writing the book thinking that religious differences had played a real role in the ending of their friendship. And what I discovered is that it really didn't, surprisingly enough. Um, Lane, or let's start with uh, Patterson. Patterson and Rand did disagree about religion, particularly on the existence of God. Now, Patterson was not particularly Christian. She was vaguely interested in Catholic theology. Theology, and she knew a lot about it. She and Rand corresponded a lot about religion, and Patterson had fun teasing Rand for having never read the Bible, for example. But uh, she was not a conventional Christian by any means, and their their breakup as the end of their friendship was more because of Patterson's personality troubles uh, in the in, in the late forties than any, than in anything about religion. And Rand did not refuse to speak to Patterson even after the end of their friendship. They corresponded still. It was just icy. Um, Lane and Rand, they apparently actually only met in person, apparently one time. And that was, uh, when Rand was on a visit to the East Coast from California and she stopped to visit Pat Lane at her house and they had a long conversation. Now, Lane later said that they had an argument about religion and that was the end of it and claimed that Rand didn't understand anything about individualism as a result. But actually, that doesn't seem to have actually happened. Lane wrote a, a very nice letter to Rand the day after their meeting in which she encouraged Rand to come back and said she loved having a conversation with her and all this sort of thing. So that was kind of retrospective 15 years later, you know. Um, so religion, it does again, does not really appear to have played the crucial role in breaking up their friendship. Rand was certainly the outspoken atheist of the three and the other and two. Even she, at one point in your book, refers to herself as a Jewish intellectual. Oh, yeah. Well, that was Patterson tried to make this clumsy joke about not liking Jewish intellectuals, and Rand did not find that funny. And that was one of the big reasons for their breakup, actually. So, yeah, they, they, Rand was definitely, she, although she was an atheist, she was very reverent. She believed very profoundly in the importance of reverence. And that is the overwhelming theme of the Fountainhead, is reverence for greatness, the spirit of looking up at, at goodness and virtue, but not particularly to the, the the god of of any particular religion. And I've heard it said that the lack of religiosity in the writing of all three of these women may be why they were so popular at the time, and why for the people who were not religious, it created an opening that conservatism headed by Buckley and others would have shut them out from Yeah, that's a very good point. I think I think the lack of religion from the god of the machine, ironically enough, is one of the reasons why that is such an interesting and breakthrough book. Well, it's not even really a lack of religion. It's a lack of organized religion. Yeah, a lack of emphasis on religion. Kind of I mean, there's a whole like... page or two on religion in the book, and she's, she believes in it. But, she, but the fact that she approaches economics from a mechanistic standpoint that anybody could then appreciate is one, is one of the things that makes that book so neat. Well, if anything, I would think that the the rise of this sort of Christian uh, Christian nationalism, for best better word, I think if they'd eschewed these three, it wouldn't be because of their lack of religiosity, but perhaps because of their other beliefs around freedom and liberty, the individual. Um, are there more questions here? Otherwise, we've got some more from online. All right. Um, 
we have a question from the, oh dear, I put in my password and not the one for this one. Uh, we have a question from the Institute of Brazil. Uh, they say that they're aimed at rescuing and promoting the idea of individualistic women authors. Um, they're called the Damas de Ferro. In this sense, what is the greatest lesson or idea that each one of these authors had and cannot be left out when we study their work? Oh, wow. Boil them down to one sentence. Let's see. Um, with Patterson and Lane, it's actually very similar. Patterson's central teaching is that uh, the economy and really all human interaction generally consists of the exchange of energy, a kind of, a kind of energy that is human energy, the energy of thought, and that when there are restrictions on the exchange of energy, it disrupts the system, the decentralized system of allocation and exchange of ideas and resources, and can lead to what she calls explosions, which means you know revolutions or depressions or what have you. With Lane, the central teaching of the discovery of freedom, which is a wonderful book, I, I hope you all will read it. The, the central teaching of the discovery of freedom is that uh, freedom is a fundamental reality of existence. It cannot be evaded. Human beings are irreducibly individual beings and cannot merge into a collective. Any effort to do so is fake. Everybody is responsible for his or her own individual life, and that cannot be changed. That's her central teaching. Rand's idea, ideas are, best un, are better understood of the other two. She believed in uh, an objective reality that can be comprehended by nature. The uh, individual exists for his own sake and not for the sake of others, meaning that your life belongs to you and not to somebody else, and that you therefore have the right to, to live your life in the pursuit of your own happiness without being dictated to by others and without dictating to other people. Um, I don't presume to be able to answer that question per se at all, but, uh, but one of the things that really did strike me the most um, about, about Patterson and Lane especially is um, how much they made clear that economic liberty is not some sort of lesser liberty. It is not, you know, some, some other tier that we can have all sorts of other, you know, good things in human flourishing, but not really worry about economic liberty. Like they made it very clear that, you know, for, for everyone, including though for women, because I think it's a lot of times what you hear is that it's, you know, capitalism is bad for women. I think they, it was, you know, they very much hammered home the idea that economic liberty is on par with all sorts of other liberty. And economic liberty is not just about economics. It's about individualism and self-ownership, which is so important for women. And also, I think it's good to make the distinction between what Europeans might call freedoms and what Americans refer to as freedom. Like, you know, you have this old aristocratic privilege. Oh, you've got your freedoms to do this, that, the other, to engage in certain kinds of businesses. But the vision that Rand, Patterson, and Lane all take is that there is not freedoms, there is one indivisible freedom that is a fact of life and how we should treat every single individual. Almost the concept of positive versus negative rights, right? Like what you have inherently as an individual versus what you get from someone else. Yeah. Um, I know we're coming up, oh, um, we'll take one more question, sure. If you could keep it short, please. Can you talk a little bit of, <clears throat> excuse me, can you talk a little bit about these women's families and to what extent their family relations, whether they married, whether they had children, had any influence on their philosophies? Patterson married very briefly. The marriage broke up within, I think, a month. Uh, and they, uh, she never officially got divorced, but she, she uh, never saw her husband again. 
Uh, Lane was married also very briefly for a little bit longer than that, but um, she was very disappointed by marriage and she had a miscarriage early in the marriage, which left the operation then left her unable to bear children after that. She got a divorce after that. And then she appears, although uh, her biographer is, is suspicious that she was actually a lesbian, she certainly did have all of her more inter intimate relationships after that were with women, including Dorothy Thompson, as I mentioned. Uh, and then she, uh, she adopted many children after that. She adopted most notably Reg Maida, a, a boy she met in Albania, but several other people also, and she subsidized them uh, throughout her life. Uh, Rand is the only one of the of the three who was married for life. She married when she was uh, lived in, in California, and uh, none of them had children. How their families influenced them, I think Rand was influenced in Russia by her mother's uh, kind of intellectual leanings to some degree. We can't really prove any of this. Um, when she came to America, she would send care packages home to her family in the Soviet Union. But of course, as a prominent spokesman for individualism, it was very risky for her to have any contact with her family because they, the Soviets would might very well punish her family. Her sister came to America in, what, the 70s, I think, very to visit briefly, and Rand tried to persuade her to defect, and she refused and went back to the Soviet Union, persuaded that the taxi drivers were all CIA spies. Um, Lane was the one who was most influenced by her family, particularly her, her parents, whose stories about life on the frontier affected how she viewed individual liberty a great deal beginning upon her return to the United States in the late 1920s. As far as Patterson, unfortunately, we know very little about Patterson's early life. Between 1886 and 1920 is almost an entire, almost completely blank. They just don't know what happened to her during those years. Um, we are coming up on time, so I want to ask each of our panelists if you could just, in a sentence or two, what do you want people to take away from this discussion we've had here today? Um, that arguing for freedom will not make you the most popular person on the planet, that you will offend people, that people will not like you, and that these women, they knew that going into it. And I think we all ought to know it as well, that it is not an easy position to hold, but it's important to hold nonetheless. My lesson uh, is by my book. Um, really, my book is not primarily about feminism or about women's rights. It's about the cultural and intellectual climate in which these three women did such pioneering work. And I hope you all enjoy that, that perspective. I would say the fact that these three women were very bold and that this is a lesson that carries over to electoral politics in a big way. And I advocate it, the, the idea that practical and radical or bold are incompatible, I think is false. And they've shown that people just won't even remember what you have to say unless it's bold. I'll go with the very obvious point that uh, there have been influential women in libertarianism or the liberty movement throughout the history of it. And um, maybe a little bit of the idea that women don't love these ideas and have not been instrumental in shaping them is just um, oversight. And, you know, you have you have to look a little harder sometimes to find women like these than to find some of your other big libertarian thinkers. But they're they're there and they've been there all along. Okay, and on that, thank you all for coming and for participating in this discussion. You can get copies of uh, Freedom's Furies uh, from the Cato website. Thank you.